Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. In a previous episode, we spoke with mining and resources expert Sam Catalano about investing in lithium with an education into the lithium industry. We had some great feedback on the value listeners got from that episode, so I thought we should do something similar on another growing and very important industry, and that's the healthcare industry. So this episode, I'm going to speak with Wilson's equity analyst, Melissa Benson, to learn about the drugs and device sector within the wider healthcare industry. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Melissa, thanks very much for, for joining us, us today. But before we get into it, can you please share with listeners a bit about your background and how you became an expert in this very important but also very technical area? So prior to joining Wilson's, I did a PhD focused in drug development. And that has always been kind of an area where then, you know, I did some subsequent research projects and worked in clinical trials and hospitals. I guess this particular area in in drugs and devices and evaluating those companies um, have been doing for a long time, but on on the other side of the fence, if you like. So how long did the PhD take? Uh, It was about three and a half years, all up. And any more insight that you can share with us on, on what you studied or what, what you researched? I was focused on trying to find new new drug approaches for epilepsy because a lot of epilepsy is not very well treated. And so we were trying to find new mechanisms where we could drug it to, to stop seizures. And so that was really my focus. Do I recall that you've done some study in the US too? Yes, I did. So after I finished my PhD, I, I moved to the US and I did a fellowship over there. It was also in epilepsy, but I kind of moved into a new area in a very specific pediatric epilepsy. So that was very interesting. I think what I found about the US is it was great. I I lived in Manhattan in New York. That was great. But also having experience of US hospitals now in, in this role, it's just so helpful to kind of understand how a hospital works and the flow within a hospital. And I think it really helps to get a sense um, when you're talking about these businesses that operate over there. We might actually speak about uh, the US medical industry in a bit shortly. Before we zoom in on, on, on medical drugs and devices, let's start off with the wider healthcare industry. Melissa, what sectors fall under the healthcare umbrella? And maybe you know, in your answer, if you could share some publicly listed companies that operate in that sector that listeners might be familiar with. Sure. So the healthcare sector on the ASX is obviously very broad. So you've got things like like hospitals or other service providers like aged care. So Ramsey is obviously an example of in the hospital space people would be aware of. You've got pathology, some big ones like Sonic people may know. There's also other medical services more like dentistry or radiology or IVF. So that might be things like Pacific Smiles or Capital Health or Monash. IVF is another example. 
And then you've got things like the drug and devices space. So there's some very well-known ASX success stories like Cochlear and ResMed. And then, of course, on the drug side, CSL is the big Aussie stellar example there. All right. Let's let's zoom in on, on drugs and devices, which is going to be the, the topic of the conversation today. So as an analyst, how do you apply a valuation to a drug and device business that may be at a different stage of the business to you know, others in the sector? So some might be quite early stage non-revenue, whilst others are proven businesses very much making quite a healthy, stable, consistent profit. I'm interested if you could just provide us a bit of insight there, please. Yeah. So when we think about valuations, we really match them with the stage and the risk profile of the the business, right? So maybe if I answer the ones you spoke about, if they're kind of a profitable business, you know, we would typically use kind of a standard discounted cash flow or DCF, which I don't think is unique to a lot of analysts. So those are businesses that are profitable or very close to. But when we think about businesses that are pre-revenue, that's where we need to employ some different models because obviously, you know, it's challenging to look at things like multiples when, when you don't have any sales. So that's when we use a variation of a DCF called real options. And I don't want to get too complicated, but really all we're doing there is is we're taking the overall opportunity of the drug or the device into the future. We're looking at things like the market share, you know, what price we think it might get, the launch ramp. And then we're kind of applying kind of stage gated risk weightings to that valuation. I guess some background to that and how we think about those stage gatings that might be helpful for listeners is at a high level, drugs and devices have to progress through clinical trials typically before they can get to the market, right? They need to be proven that they're safe and effective. And and those approvals are given by regulatory bodies. So that might be like the TGA in Australia or, or the FDA in the US. Drugs typically have a much longer and more stringent pathway to approval than devices do. But in a very general sense, what you do is if you discover something in the lab and you decide, okay, this is excellent, I'm going to progress this, you then typically would, would test it in the lab in different cell or animal models. And then you might move that drug into phase one clinical trials. So that's really focused on safety. It's the first time you've put it in a human and you're really just making sure that the drug is safe. And that typically might be in healthy volunteers. If it's safe, then you can move to phase two. There's a lot of iterations of phase two, but very simply, they're typically the first time you would put it into the patient population of the patients that you're trying to treat. And again, you're focused on safety primarily, but this is also where you get the first glimpse into efficacy if the drug works. And then, of course, if you pass phase two, then you move into the late stage or phase three studies. And those trials are even bigger, like more patients, and you're really focused always on safety, but then also proving out that the drug or the device works. And typically, if, if that's a drug or device where you're, you're targeting a certain disease that already has approved drugs, you would be trying to prove that your drug is better, or even if it's not better, that it can do as good a job, but more safely. Or it could also be moving into a market where there are no other approved drugs. And sometimes that's where you might be comparing to a placebo, which is really just an inactive version. So those are kind of the key stage gating points that we refer to when we're talking about our valuations, because as you would expect, as you progress through, you know, the phase one, phase two, phase three, and then at the end of that, that's when you can file for a regulatory approval. Those are really kind of the key stage gating points. And so we ascribe different risk probabilities to each of those. And really that's how we can kind of risk our valuation. And so the result of that might be 
that only 20% of that total valuation is really reflected in our current valuation at one point in time. And as the drug or device progresses through those pathways, that's when we can kind of unlock some of that valuation, if that makes sense. Melissa, what does the drop-off look like in terms of the risks at each phase one, phase two, phase three? Is there one particular area that many drugs or devices don't get past? When you look across the the entire kind of market of, of drugs and devices, and this is probably more so for drugs, phase one is a massive area where a lot of drugs fall out just on the safety perspective. So if you've made it through phase one, that's a big hurdle. And then of course, phase two, where you're evaluating it for the first time in your clinical population, that's another big kind of risk point. I I mean, it's also the same when you move to phase three, there's still a lot that fail at phase three, but I think progressively you can have more confidence as it, it moves through those phases. And if you drop off at phase one, phase two, phase three, does that automatically mean that the company is worth nothing? Is is there any residual value that may still lie there? So it depends on the company in the sense if it was a company where they were only looking at one drug in one indication, for example, you would see a very material kind of reduction in valuation because that was all they had. But a lot of companies we look at, they might be looking at more than one drug or or several devices, or they also might be looking across multiple different types of cancer, for example. So a failure in one doesn't necessarily read through to failures in others if they're fairly unrelated. So it's very kind of circumstantial depending on the company. Yeah, of course. And another question is let's say a drug gets through these three phases and it's looking for regulatory approval. Just because it gets approved by the TGA or FDA, does that imply that most will approve it or you may still find that only some regulatory bodies approve it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And there are some pretty interesting examples of drugs that are only approved in Europe and have been declined for approval in the US. And then another drug example, only approved in the US and not in Europe. So Typically, we see that, I would say more often than not, it would be approved by all jurisdictions or those that they apply for, but there's definitely examples where different jurisdictions make a different call on the same drug and have a different outcome. As you were describing these three phases before, it it made me think back to in mining resources, they they call it the the Lausanne curve, this, this chart that shows the value creation process at different stages of a mining company now or a mining development. Now, if I recall correctly, in the development stage, the share price often ramps up very early. However, the share value may actually come off during the production phase. Is there any particular milestone or gate that you've you've mentioned that is one key ad- catalyst that often really materially moves a share price? I mean, each of those phase progressions can be all very material to the share price, but I would say that regulatory approval, particularly from someone like the FDA, is often the biggest catalyst for a device or a drug company. You know, that obviously de-risks the opportunity because that means that you have potential now to make revenues from said drug or device. We had a big example of that this year on ASX, you know, in March, Neuron got approved for their drug by the FDA. And you saw that the share price, you know, basically doubled. The phase two, phase three, they can still be very, very material share price catalysts for drugs and devices. And it probably I should clarify also the phase one, two, three progression is probably more typical of drugs than devices where 
drug uh, drugs have a higher kind of hurdle to get regulatory approval than devices. Some devices make it to the market without any clinical trials, and that's really devices, for example, can be approved on the basis of being substantially equivalent to other devices. There is kind of a different risk profile, but regulatory approval by a major regulator like the FDA, that's a major catalyst for both drugs and devices. We won't go through all these regulatory bodies, but how does the FDA compared to many of the other larger regulatory bodies around the world in terms of difficulty getting approval for some of these drugs and devices? Well, I think the US is often seen as the primary kind of the the gold medal market, if you like, just because the market itself is the biggest and particularly in drugs and devices, some of the pricing can be the best in the US. So the FDA is often the, the kind of test regulator, if you like, and not always, as we mentioned before, but typically you might see the Australian or European regulators following the FDA's lead quite strongly, just because, yeah, the FDA is kind of viewed as, I guess, the leading regulator in that sense. They're very similar in structure, I guess, to the TGA. Europe is a little different because Europe can, as you imagine, there's many, many countries and jurisdictions within Europe. So European approvals can be a little bit more challenging because sometimes they involve country by country approvals, as opposed to the US, which is obviously just one big approval. Now, some of the drugs and devices that we've we've heard about from time to time might actually sound quite niche, but with an aging population, there's probably a huge TAM or, or total addressable market out there. So are, are there any examples you can share of what might be perceived to be a small drug or device that actually makes a lot of money? So I think orphan drugs are a great example of this. So, you know, by definition, an orphan drug is one that treats a, a very rare, also known as an orphan condition. So if we think about the US, that's defined as less something that affects less than 200,000 patients, but that's out of 330 million Americans. So we're talking very ultra rare. And often it might look to an outsider where you've only got five or 10,000 patients in the entire world that you can treat with this drug. But orphan drugs do have some special benefits, like they do get higher drug pricing. That's really to make up for the, the R&D costs, because you really want to make sure that you're making it commercially viable so that investment and new developments are happening in those rare disease for those patients. You also get some special market exclusivity from regulators that prevents kind of competitor entry or generics, which is independent of your patents. And it also can be less competitive markets. So a good ASX example of this would be Clinubel. So that's a company, you know, they're one of the only profitable drug companies on the ASX other than, you know, CSL and one or two others. And they have a highly cash generative business supported thus far just by one drug in one very rare disease. So they're generating over $65 million a year from treating less than a thousand patients. And so that's a really good example of where it may look like, you know, a very small addressable market, but it can be a very profitable business. And I think orphan drugs are an example there. You don't really see this so much in devices because you don't have those same kind of incentives present. There are some new technology incentives, but they're not really the same as what you would see with orphan drugs. Melissa, I'm, I'm interested. You, you did mention some terminology there that listeners may not be familiar with, with orphan drugs. Any other commonly used terms across the industry that you could maybe shed some light on before we start to look at deeper at some examples? 
Sure. So I think you already mentioned total addressable market or TAM and standard of care is another common one. So you should always just think about that as the status quo. So whatever treatment is already the status quo. Diagnostics are often brought up. So that's something that you're using to evaluate or diagnose a condition and really using it to guide what treatment or therapeutic you will then use. I know isotopes comes up a little bit, particularly when we have companies like Telix and, and Clarity on their ASX. So that's related to the radiopharmaceutical arena. And so they're referring here to radioactive isotopes. So what these are is they're a version of an element like gallium or copper, and they're basically unstable and they decay because of the number of electrons. And really what that does is it produces energy as they decay. And you can kind of harness that energy for either imaging or therapeutic purposes. So when that energy comes close contact to a cancer cell, for example, it can kill the cell. Another one that might be relevant, you might hear is metastatic. So that's really in reference to cancer. And that's when we think of metastatic cancer, we think of maybe late, late stage or stage four cancer. And it's really when the cancer's progressed from the primary organ into other areas of the body. And that's obviously a very hard type of cancer to treat. And of course, there are so many regulatory terms. I won't kind of go through a lot of them. But one thing that's relevant, I think, when you're looking at drug or device companies, you may see is CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. And that is the big US regulatory body who's in charge of government reimbursement of drugs or devices. So they're somewhat similar to the PBS here in Australia. But those are very key because securing CMS reimbursement can be really critical to a lot of companies' future growth plans. Fascinating. Now, before we go into some examples, there is a question that I missed earlier that I meant to ask, and that's to do with the valuation models that you apply to your companies. You mentioned the DCF, the discounted cash flow. I'm interested, how long in terms of runway do these drugs typically have before they lose their patent? Is that how you build out your discounted cash flow? Yes. When we think about a drug and what the terminal year is, if you like, we think about the opportunity on the market until then. So if you have a patent term of typically 20 years, a lot of pharmaceuticals can extend that to 25 years. Of course, it depends how long it was in development before it made it to the market, but you may still have, say, 10 years on the market where you have that, which secures kind of the market to yourself. There are also, though, market exclusivity, sometimes granted by regulators when you get approval. So the orphan drugs that I was talking to before, sometimes, you know, in Europe, you'll get 12 years exclusivity on the market. So we look at either the patent term or the market exclusivity, and we use that as kind of our final year in for a drug as to when we think you know the peak opportunity is captured and then of course we recognize that as soon as a generic enters you don't have zero sales anymore um, but we kind of end it there to capture the opportunity and recognizing that drugs will be sold well beyond their patent life. Well so let's look at a success story in the ASX. Let's explore Telix, which you mentioned earlier. For those maybe not familiar with Telix, can you please provide a bit of an intro and a bit of background on the business and, and how their story has played out so far? Yeah, so Telix is a very interesting example. Telix is a radiopharmaceutical company. So they deal in the nuclear medicine area. And really what they're trying to do is develop new diagnostics and new therapeutics that pair together ideally so that you can image a cancer and then follow up with a therapy that is highly targeted to that imaging. So 
They're a great example of someone who they've had a vision to bring together existing research and technology that was already kind of being experimentally used, perhaps in other areas of the market. And the founders there, one of which is, you know, the current CEO, they saw that the regulators, in particular the FDA, were really wanting to hold nuclear medicine, I guess, to a higher standard. Because as I said, it was kind of used a bit more experimentally. It wasn't a formalized kind of commercial pharmaceutical product. And so Telix took on the responsibility to do this. And so they acquired some great assets and really invested to kind of develop those and get them to commercial stages. So Telix have kind of a see and treat motto, and that's really relating to their imaging diagnostics, being able to visualize the cancer, which is obviously very helpful for like something like metastatic cancer, where it may have spread all throughout the body, and then to treat it using therapeutics that are targeted in the same way that their imaging agents are. So Ilucix, that's their kind of current moneymaker. That's a diagnostic agent in prostate cancer, able to identify prostate cancer, and it targets a molecule called PSMA. And so that diagnostic, it employs a radioisotope, like we mentioned earlier. This one's gallium-68. And what that really does is as the it emits energy, it decays, and then you can see that with a PET camera. So you can see the cancer visually with a PET scan, which is something that you haven't been able to do before, and clinicians really love that. And then in clinical trials, they're following up with a, a therapeutic that would look to complement that diagnostic agent. But that diagnostic agent, you know, they submitted that to the FDA and received formal drug approval in very late 2021. That agent now sells in the US market for about $4,000 a dose. You know, they're annualizing $400 million a year already in, in sales just from that product. And they have more like that in their pipeline. And so, you know, they're already looking to get approval for a second imaging agent next year in renal cancer. And so you can see that there's a lot of synergies when you have kind of a platform approach like this that you can take across multiple cancers. So Telix is focused in prostate renal and, and brain cancers primarily. So they have a pipeline of therapeutic products, as I mentioned. So those are still in development and they're actually in a very enviable position for a lot of biotech because they now have revenues from their diagnostic that is able to fund the R&D expense of going into their therapeutic pipeline. And, and that can be a really challenging kind of hurdle for a lot of biotech companies to overcome. Fascinating. So, you know, in the Telix example, what we're seeing is this almost portfolio approach to the pipeline is being rolled out. So now it's just, correct me if I'm wrong, an execution strategy of getting these out across the market whilst other products and keep moving through the development stage. Yeah, correct. So they, they're kind of working on two fronts now. Now they have a commercial business with Ilucix in the market, and then that might be joined by a second product and then the pipeline business. I think also on the execution strategy point, that's very important. Getting an approval doesn't equate to success. Getting an approval enables you to drive success, but you know they've partnered really well with large US partners. They have very clear strategies of who their customers are, how they're going to target them. And so that's been really important. Obviously, most drug markets are highly competitive. And so, as I mentioned, getting an approval alone, you need a really good go-to-market strategy to, to follow that up. And for those that might not be familiar with the Telix story, Melissa, a question without notice, like, what's the market cap of the company right now? Oh, last time I looked, I think they're over three and a half billion, which is kind of crazy when you think that, you know, Wilson's IPO Telix back in 2017, and it was only around $100 million. So that's what, less than six years later. So it's an impressive growth story. Mm. 
It, it certainly is. Let's look at a company earlier on in their journey, maybe somewhat similar to where Telix was many years ago with aspirations to get through the phases, get the, the regulatory body approval and win market share around the world. Who's someone that you could uh, speak to that might be similar to that? So I would say Imutep is definitely a good example of something like this. So they're earlier in the journey, as you said, so they're pre-commercial, but they have a lot of similarities to Telix in some ways. So they're also focused in cancer on the therapy side, not not so much on diagnostics, but they also kind of ended up here on the ASX via acquisition. You know, it was previously another company, Prima Biomed, who acquired Imutep, um, which is a French company, still founded and led by their chief medical scientific officer. What they're really trying to do is they're trying to find new drugs to kill different types of cancer. They're focused in lung, head and neck and breast cancers but they're really focused on trying to treat the hardest patients. So those who have metastatic disease, as we mentioned before. And the way they're doing this is about 10 years ago in, in the cancer therapeutics journey, a new discovery was made called immuno-oncology, or rather I should say a new market segment was developed. And the focus of this is really harnessing the body's own immune system to try and fight and kill cancer cells. And so Imitep have several drugs in their pipeline, but their, their lead one does exactly this, what it does is you stimulate your body's own immune system, which is typically there just to defend and attack any attack any bugs that are trying to you know harm your body's system, and they're really stimulating that and and intensifying it so that it can attack cancer cells. So it's very novel. They're doing it through a target called Lag three, but it has very very broad potential in oncology. And so you know in terms of where they're at in those clinical phases, they have really good phase two and phase two B clinical data. They're moving into phase three, which is obviously very exciting for, for a company like this. And that obviously de-risks the investment um, up to that stage. Now, this relates to your prior point is even when you're in development, you need to be thinking about your go-to-market kind of strategy. And a lot of people often ask, well, how can a really small biotech ever compete against these huge big pharma like, you know, Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb? How are they ever going to make this work? And the strategy that's always smart is to try and expand the blockbusters markets. So don't try and compete against them. Try and make yourself incredibly valuable to their business. And that's exactly what Imutep doing. So they're not trying to complete uh, to compete against the $20 billion a year blockbuster drugs. They're pairing with them so that they're actually expanding the addressable markets of those drugs. And so that's a very, you know, attractive and valuable strategy. And that employs across, you know, drugs and devices. Anytime you can make yourself more valuable to the market leaders, that's an impressive strategy. So, so we look at the impressive clinical trial data that they have. We look at the impressive kind of strategy and the go-to-market opportunity they have. And I think that's why um, we really like, and we're excited about that as a success story in the future. Yeah, certainly is a very serious problem out there in the community. Melissa, I feel like we could speak for ages and that we've only really dipped our toe in the water in terms of what is going out there. But in the interest of time, we need to wrap it up there. But it's been a fascinating discussion. I'd love to have you back on for another episode at some stage in the future. Thanks, Ted. It's been really great. Well, if you're interested in anything discussed today, then please speak with your Wilson's advisor or use the contact formed on the Wilson's website to request an advisor to give you a call. There's a link to that in the episode show notes. 
Thanks very much for listening to the Invest Hit Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.